This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Turning it up in Music City, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. On today's episode, I'll be talking with HFMA's Katie Gilfillan about our upcoming annual conference in Nashville. But first, it's been a while since we've had a news update and there's an awful lot to talk about. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hey everyone, Uh, since we last spoke to you, there have been quite a few big news stories in healthcare policy. One is the release in April of the Medicare proposed rule for the inpatient prospective payment system in the upcoming fiscal year, FY24. The headlining number is a 2.8% increase in payments for inpatient services. That could be updated based on changes to the underlying economic data over the next few months before publication of the final rule. And then there are fairly significant cuts being proposed to supplemental payments. Sean, it's a 1,500 some odd page rule as published in the Federal Register. What about it jumps out to you? As usual, long rule. We're still processing it, even though it's been out for a few weeks. Been meeting with colleagues here at HFMA to discuss the very, you know, intricate details of the rule. But you know, I mean, it's it's typical CMS rule. There really haven't been any huge surprises in the rule. A little bit disheartened by the the 2.8 percent increase in the fee schedule. I mean, that doesn't even come close to keeping up with the labor expenses that you know Kaufman Hall shows for those 86 billion in 2022. And then non-labor expenses, of course, are now on the rise. We're starting to see some sediment in, in labor, contract labor expenses, but you know, non-labor expenses in 2022 were $49 billion for hospitals. And we, we think that's going to go up even more with the impact of inflation. So the 2.4%, um, I know my colleagues and, and HFMA will be pushed back pretty heavily saying that's just not enough. But we do understand, of course, um, CMS's reluctance given the the Medicare trust fund, and and they really are trying to save pennies everywhere they can. So that is, you know, the overlying theme of what we are processing right now, as well as, you know, the outlier payment threshold increase again by 5%, which on top of last year's dramatic inflated increase on outlier payments really is hitting home with a lot of hospitals on those extended stays where folks are hitting outliers more often, right? Yeah, I remember you called that out last year as well. And and uh, yeah, it's just about the same update this year. And the concern about the rule is reflected in the feedback from all the big hospital associations. I think none of them are particularly pleased with the rate increase. You know, I always think it's it's interesting to do a little bit of a deeper dive. That 2.8% number is basically the average increase for all hospitals. Yeah. Uh, the actual number will vary quite a bit depending on your region. Yep. based on changes to the wage index. 
for example, CMS's projections show that if you're a designated urban hospital in the Pacific region, you're in line for a 6.4% update. That's pretty good. Whereas in the mountain region, it's only 0.1%, which needless to say is paltry, but at least better than what's in store for the New England region, which is looking at a 0.2% decrease. So some of those hospitals could really use an update to the market basket inputs that would result in a more favorable payment change in the final rule. And we're looking at a pretty good reduction in uncompensated care payments as well, aren't we? We are. We're an un- uncompensated care payments. We're looking at a 2.4% decrease across the board. And I agree with you, Nick. You bring about a very interesting perspective that this rule, more than most rules um, that we've seen in the last few years, providers and, and hospitals really should be teaming up with the regional or their state hospital associations to comment on what the specific impacts that you were just talking about make in their specific states, because everyone's going to have a different perspective and a different issue with the rule. So partnering with your community and your region and your state is very important when commenting on this rule and making sure your voices are heard, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And you, I think you touch on this every year, but the importance of making your voice heard during the comment period this year more than most is is definitely something to keep in mind. Also, many rural hospitals will do a little bit better than some other hospitals. Projections are that as a group, they would get, I believe, a 3.3% increase due to the geographic reclassification methodology. I think that, you know, th- those those issues are very specific to each region, each state. And, and it's, it's very important for those rural hospitals to be looking at wage index and commenting appropriately based on their scenario. It is nice to see that CMS is moving forward with the homeless Z codes, the reporting there to show utilization management for those patient populations that are are a little bit more of a challenge to take care of. And it's interesting and, and nice to see that CMS is finally bringing that to fruition and reporting requirements. And hopefully that will help support hospitals in reimbursement and in utilization management with their partners, the payers in supporting those populations through a health equity lens. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to see CMS finally incorporating more of a social determinants of health focus formally in their regulations. There's also a pretty big issue for hospitals to comment on regarding safety net status. What can you tell folks about that? Yeah, I agree. I agree, Nick. The safety net RFI is out there with the descriptions and the details that folks can read. But if this impacts you or impacts the hospitals in your system, I've been working with California Hospital Association as well as AHA on comments surrounding the safety net RFI. Please reach out to your hospital associations in a uniformed approach and really make that RFI, that request for information really dynamic um, this year so we can give CMS some real world guidance on what we want to include there in that safety net inclusion. All right. Yeah. Great insight. So just a ton of stuff to mull over in the uh, IPPS proposed rule. Again, comment period runs through June 9th, and it'll be very interesting to see how everything shakes out in the final rule to be published a couple months after that in August. Hey, as always, appreciate the perspective and thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Nick. HFMA's annual conference is one of my favorite events of the year. It's a great opportunity to meet members, hear great speakers, and explore a new city. 
Recently, I talked with Katie Gilfillan, HFMA's Director of Healthcare Finance Policy and Education, about what to expect this year. Katie, we're in Nashville this year for annual conference. That's uh, new to us anyway, and new to many HFMA members, um, an exciting city. So tell me about what's happening in Nashville for annual conference. We're so excited to have our annual conference there this year. Nashville has such a fun, upbeat vibe. It has so much to offer as far as a thriving food scene, rich history with museums and historic sites. And it's probably most well known for its music scene. It's also known as Music City. It has the Grand Old Opry, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and many other music venues. But Nashville's also an epicenter for the healthcare industry. It's home to over 500 healthcare companies. That includes some of the nation's largest provider and healthcare IT companies, making Nashville the perfect host for HMA's annual conference. The conference will take place at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center. It's just northeast of the city. And the venue makes everything so convenient and accessible with all the lodging, education, the exhibit hall, all our networking events, all taking place in that one location. All right. So let's talk about what's new and exciting. There is one very big new and exciting thing. Um, I'll let you talk about that. But what's new and exciting? As I mentioned, Nashville is home to the Grand Ole Opry. It's a historic venue showcasing country music's most famous singers. And it's located just steps away from the Opryland Resort. So this year, to kick off the event, HMA is hosting a private concert at the Grand Ole Opry just for our annual conference attendees, creating a really memorable and fun start to the conference. The other new and exciting element to our annual conference this year is HMA's new CEO and president, Anne Jordan. She'll be taking the stage and sharing her insights as HFMA's new leader. So attendees will have a chance to hear from her and from our outgoing president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, as he reflects on his years with HFMA and shares his parting message. So we've got a lot of great speakers lined up, some exciting sessions. Do you want to highlight a few? Sure. This year, we'll be, again, live streaming all our general sessions. So attendees who choose the virtual option will also have a chance to hear our great lineup of keynotes, including a panel of some of the most influential healthcare CFOs on how they're positioning their organizations for success in today's healthcare market. Other keynotes include Dr. Thomas Fisher. He is the author of the memoir, The Emergency, and he will share a riveting firsthand account of being an ER physician at the University of Chicago during the pandemic. And he will reflect on lessons learned that can help improve care for all. We also have Alex Oshmayansky. He's the founder and CEO of Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company. It's a company that is radically disrupting the pharmaceutical industry. And then finally, our other keynote is Scott Rouse, and he is an expert in behavior analysis, who's going to help us all become better communicators by becoming more fluent in body language. I also want to mention the event will also bring all our essential education covering core topics such as accounting and finance, led by our partnership with the AICPA, emerging issues in innovation and technology, payment and care delivery, revenue cycle, and then we have some thought-provoking ideas on our tracks on cost-effectiveness of health, leadership and business strategy, and data and analytics. 
So no matter what your role, I think you should find something at our annual conference that meets your professional development needs. Awesome. Well, I am really looking forward to being there and seeing everybody. Um, Till then, Katie Gilflin, thank you for joining me. Thank you. There's a lot more to the agenda. So if you want to take a look or maybe even register, you can go to hfma.org. Of course, our annual conference and so much of what we do at HFMA wouldn't be possible without the help of our great sponsors. And right now I'm excited to share an interview with one of those sponsors. The May issue of HFM Magazine features an article sponsored by Philips. In that article, finance leaders from around the country talk about how they're facing the greatest challenges in healthcare. Today on the podcast, we're zeroing in on a few of those challenges with Carrie Ryan and Amy Pike of Philips. How can you stay ahead or even just stay current when you're dealing with serious financial constraints? Hi, Erica, this is Carrie. I can jump right in and address this. I think that we see the financial constraints certainly in recent months, but actually for a long time. And, you know, when we talk about the difference between capital and operational costs, typically healthcare organizations wanted to capitalize new technologies in order to, over time, you know, be able to depreciate it. Today, one of the ways that we can help deal with that is through subscription models. And more and more healthcare technology companies are coming out with subscription models, which helps to alleviate the capital upfront and brings it over a longer period of time through the life of the solutions. But the great thing about that is that it actually helps to keep up with the technology. As new upgrades come out and things are are updated in the technology, you don't have to go out and and buy new systems. Through the software subscription or the technology subscription model, upgrades are done for the organization. And typically, we could do that in a cloud environment, which creates less downtime for the organization as well. So I think that these new models that are coming out rather than just traditional capital purchase models are helping organizations deal with this issue. Hospital executives are really searching for ways to finance new technology solutions to drive better outcomes without further impacting their bottom line. Uh, So with hospitals facing obviously more pressure to provide quality and cost-effective care, the relationship between industries such as Philips is shifting from selling boxes, more or less, to a relationship based on advice, close collaborations, and risk sharing. Um, Healthcare organizations understand they have an inherent commitment to innovation, and their field is also on a trajectory of change. So the move away from a discussion based on product prices to one about collaborative thinking and the long-term strategic goals and ambitions of the organization has been gradual, but it's obviously evolving over time. So the healthcare organization really wants to be a part of the evolution of health technologies, which has included providing valuable clinic insights to support the development of industry-leading solutions. And I think you know these healthcare organizations and industry really need to have a relationship that's a two-way, you know, allowing to participate in the development of that new technology and change, and also allowing these healthcare organizations to be the beneficiaries of technology that's going to really help them in taking care of their patients. 
So let's pivot a little bit and talk for a moment about value-based care. Um, this is something that HFMA has been talking about. We've been beating the drum of value-based care for a very long time. And there seems to be a harder push in that direction these days from others in the industry. For healthcare organizations that are working toward adopting more value-based programs, is there a part that the right technology can play in that effort? Yeah, uh, this is Amy. Um, I can answer the question. You know, championed by government entities like CMS and the Department of Health and Human Services, value-based care is here to stay, so it's not going anywhere. Hospitals are increasingly participating in value-based programs such as the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program, as well as there's another program called Bundled Payments for Care Improvement in an effort to improve care delivery and patient outcomes while reducing the cost of care. So technology plays a real critical role in achieving value-based care by bringing together key stakeholders. Um, it has the power to break down silos, increasing communication efficiencies, connecting provider workflows, as well as enhancing visibility into that whole patient's journey. Ultimately, the technology not only improves care for patients, but also drives efficiency and also rewards uh, stakeholders based on the outcomes that they have. So technology in various forms is increasingly part of the solution in this move towards value-based care. Technology, I believe, is a foundation for value-based care. It's going to be really, really hard to move in that direction if you don't have systems that carry the data, the patient's data and information from end to end. And more and more that in the past, we always thought of that as hospital admission to discharge. And now we're really looking at pre-hospital wellness programs, hospital-based care, and then post-hospital-based care in the community and getting the patients back to wellness. So that whole continuum of care, which is really not a linear continuum, but rather a circular continuum for most patients as they, as they age. So technology is going to underpin how you can prove outcomes and how you can monitor patients throughout their life cycle. Carrie Ryan, Amy Pike, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Erica. Thank you. Philips is a health technology company focused on improving people's lives through meaningful innovation, from healthy living and prevention to diagnosis, treatment, and home care. Applying advanced technologies and deep clinical consumer insights, Philips partners with customers to deliver integrated solutions that address the quadruple aim, improve patient experience, better health outcomes, improve staff experience, and lower cost of care. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer, and you can hear him two weeks from now in a podcast interview as he reflects on his years with HFMA. You can hear that episode and all of our episodes at hfma.org. Yeah. <laughs>